Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All. I am today's moderator, Rob Leonard, and joining me always is my co-host, Mitch Axelrod. The Mitch Axelrod. And the other guy next to him. The other uh, guy. Anton Fig. No, Anton uh, Fig. Fig. <laughs> Tony, Tri- Tony Tony Chiguardo. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Tony Chiguardo. And joining us today is, we call him a Beatle author, would be totally incorrect, but he's written four books about the Beatles. So. Yes, yes. Calling him a Beatle author would be totally incorrect. Well, I mean, he's written totally other things, incorrect. right? He's written other things, Robert, right? Right. But so he is still a Beatles author. Too. Well, our, he's an author. He's an author who's written books about the Beatles. And many other people. And many other people also. And his latest book is called John, Paul, George, and Ringo, 1970 to 1980, solo in the 70s. Or is it the other way around, Robert? Uh, either way, depends okay. on what way you're looking at it. Okay, well, I'm looking as at the As long as you buy the book, does it matter? I don't know. There you go. Oh. And it is published by Parading Press. Uh, can I do my usual? Yes. No. Books are good, but parading's better. Sorry. Thank you. Oh, God, Thank help you. us. I always have to get the plug in anytime we do one of their <laughs> I'd books. I'd like to put the plug in. When, I, when, we did, when we did Al's book, I had to do the same That's thing. That's true. Who are we talking to? We are talking to Robert Rodriguez. I Yay. mentioned him. Yay. And there was much rejoicing. And Robert, welcome back to the show. Yes, Thanks, we, gentlemen. We've, we've had you on. Where? Where, gentlemen? Yeah, really. We've had you on twice. Twice, I believe. That's I think right. That's right. and Revolver. Yeah, um, and they were both real fun shows and yes. real, both great books. Now, Robert, we all know that no one cares about the solo years. That's, <laughs> that's what we've been right. told over the years, that no one cares from 1970 on because the Beatles didn't, as uh, solo artists, really didn't do anything, and we don't really care. <laughs> so why did you write nope. a book about the solo years, or at least the first decade? The first decade. Because it's this very well-defined period where it, it was the Beatles were still living history at that point. I think there was this optimism from one end of the decade till the other, and it ended with the death of John, that despite everything they were doing in their own career paths, that they would one day get together and do something, if not calling it the Beatles, it would at least be Beatle product in some fashion. And all that ended with December 1980, and that was where they passed into history and began being spoken of in past tense. So really, this is just the extension of their career that ended in 1970, where not only are they trying to establish themselves individually and get their own identities going, but they were sort of laboring under the shadow of, you know, this is great, John, Imagine it's wonderful, but when are the Beatles getting back together? So mm-hmm. does that mean, you know, right. is there another book on the horizon from 1980 on, or is this the end for writing about the solo years? It would be a great book. I'm just not the guy to write it. Okay. I mean, because then I'll have to, you know, revisit Broad Street and, you know, all this this crap stuff that I would really not care to delve into in great detail. But I think you would know that stuff better than me. Yeah, but I think with your humor, I think you would be really the person to do it because I think it deserves the humor, a lot of it, because a lot of it's funny itself. (laughs) Especially Broad Street, which there was no humor in the film, God knows. I do have a question. You know, It's weird, because I I never really thought about what you just said. The Beatles, after John was killed, were really thought about in the past tense, and I I never, ever thought about that. But uh, having written a Beatle book myself, I know how much research goes into it. Now, you, in your other books, were talking about the Beatles as a group. So you had Mm -hmm. product put out by the four of them as a whole. Now you've got four times the amount of items to research because each one's doing their separate and trying to establish themselves as you said how do you go about doing that because it's such a big undertaking 
Well, it helped that they were still sort of in each other's pockets to varying degrees, you know, if not actually playing on each other's records, which they did a little bit of, you know, then in court with each other or whatever, and they still had this, these ties to Apple. So it's not that far removed to trace their past when they're working with some of the same musicians and such. You know, it's not like if I were to do a, a book on the talking heads, you know, after they split up, you know, David Burns off in his own direction and the other guys are doing whatever they're doing. You know, that would be a lot harder because they're all in different worlds. These guys were pretty much inhabiting the same world and hanging out with the same people. You know, it, I mean, Paul was probably the most distant from the other three because he had his own band. He started up from scratch. So he wasn't using a Klaus Borman or Jim Keltner or Jesse Ed Davis. But, you know, him and John certainly were spending a lot of time together where they could once the worst of the stuff blew over. Right. There was that period. And so it, it's easy to kind of like trace. You know, I, I always find it fascinating that the last time they saw each other physically, you know, in April of 76, when they're watching SNL together, and that offer comes on from Lauren Michaels. That would have been one of the greatest moments of television history oh. had they not been so tired to or take stone. a five-minute cab ride. Yeah, or stoned, exactly. I mean, that would have been all the better. But that came within a fortnight of each of them losing their fathers. You know, right. what would the conversation have been like? You know, what would they have talked about? And you know that for guys that knew each other as long as they did going back so far, you know, we think of them as Beatles, and we think of them as, you know, oh, you know, talking about their music or the stuff that's important to us. But they have a very intimate personal relationship, knowing the same people they grew up with and living in the same places and all that. Losing their mothers. That, yeah, losing their mothers. I tend to think that their conversation would steer more toward their common roots than what they did in their career at that point. Let me ask you a question, though, following up on that. If, if, if that's the case, Paul and John became so close because they both lost their mothers. All right. Mm -hmm. Personally, do you think maybe they could have renewed their friendship if it was a little bit later when they both lost their fathers? I have no doubt. And the, the problem is, and this is not Yoko bashing, you know, I'm not going to be walking around the no, no, no. With, you know, still pissed at Yoko. But it's like when John and Yoko were together, it left little room for anything else. Now, part of that might have been the design that, you know, there's been so many accounts where Paul would try to get a hold of John over the phone and Yoko would block the call. But also, I think that's where John's interest lies. Like, once him and Yoko were reconnected, it, like, basically shut the world out. You know, they had a few close friendships with people that happened to be in proximity, like Peter Boyle or other people living in the Dakota. But in terms of being part of the bigger world, you know, the gates were up. And I think as long as that situation persisted, you know, it left little room for John and Paul to do anything or the other ex Beatles. I mean, Ringo was given a pass because I guess he didn't really pose a threat. But yeah. I think that if the Yoko and John dynamic was a little bit different, he had something resembling more of a normal social interaction with the world, it absolutely would have happened. It could have been that Yoko was told by John, I don't want to talk to Paul. <laughs> Well, well, maybe, but we'll never not know guilty that. of anything yeah. more than John is. You know, right. Because, you know, and we have discussed yeah, that. Yeah, we previously discussed that. So. Yeah. I know you start with 1974, and we've had Mark Lewison on talking specifically about 1974. That's a really big year, but there's so much. The book goes in chapters, and it's pretty structured. Uh, there's promo films, part one and two, court battles, songs recorded by others. And protégés. by the way, I'm sorry, just to toss in, Robert, I'm so glad that you didn't just do a chronological breakdown of the period. Yeah, me too. I just that you do it in segments. I, I love the way the FAQ books are laid out in general. Well, you could go to any because, section. Exactly. And read it read and still enjoy You can right. go to the last section, the timeline. Right. Or you can go to the first section about promo films and 
It's fine. And I also like the fact that you broke up the promo films in two sections uh, because yeah. it gives you more to read. There's so many promo films times four, you know, but I mean, if you don't mind, can we get right into some stuff? Sure. I learned so much and I'm a Beatle geek and I learned so much. I always do reading your books, which is a big credit to you and your research. But let's go for like promo films. I mm -hmm. didn't realize that there were two It Don't Come Easy and that Band on the Run was done by a college guy and it became the official promo. Yeah, and it became the official promo like after the fact. Yeah. Like, after it got some attention a couple of years, you know, after the album came out. Yeah, it, it's very interesting because I, like a lot of people, you know, come the advent of YouTube and you're catching up on things you might not have seen in years or seen at all. And there, you know, Band on the Run, promo film, official, and it's this Beatle laden thing, you know, <laughs> pictures of Brian Epstein and very Liverpool weird. and all that stuff. Yeah, it's like, really? Why Paul? would he it's do that? Like, yeah, exactly. And come to find out, no, he didn't do that. A Beatle geek did that as part of his you know, college project. And it was so good. And in the absence of Paul actually doing one officially himself, it became the one. And it's very interesting that he was not averse to making promo films from pretty early on. That, that of all things, he didn't create his own. It's very striking. And yet there's one for Mamunia. Well, I, I, and I was going to get to the Mamunia because you know what? While we're on it, though, and I do want to get to the second and don't come easy, but... The revelation here, I mean, sort of a revelation, was that Mamunia was really going to be considered as an A-side. Yeah. Or a double A-side, which is very odd to me. It's mm -hmm. almost like, what's the new Mary Jane, you know? Let's put that, <laughs> Paul was thinking, like, in John terms. Why would you do that? You know, you already almost killed your career with Mary Had a Little Lamb, and now you're going to do Mamunia? I think at that point in his career, it would have done a disservice to where he was going. Well, I tried to make some sense of that in my own head, and I don't think that I put this into the book, but, you know, looking at the music charts of that period, 73, 74, what kind of mellow sort of MOR stuff was getting some crossover appeal, and I was wondering if that was what he was going for. You know, they was trying to sort of broaden beyond the rock arena audience and get a little bit of that, you know, which eventually he did get when he did uh, with a little luck. He was pulling for the massive. the James yeah. Taylor, you know, whatever yeah. the James Carly Taylor, Simon. Carly Simon, yeah, right, even an, right. even yeah. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, yeah, right. Yeah, well, true. yeah, you know, who started her career being basically a George Harrison tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, right, right. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump around a little bit, but for me. As a lifelong collector of all the underground stuff, I have to say you pulled out a really great cross section of the bootlegs and, and the early stuff. What I appreciate about it is, though we've seen tracks from some of these come out on the um, you know the anthologies and things like that, I appreciate you really did a great job pulling out things like watching rainbows and and I think it's. A lot of people, the young people of the CD generation, thinks that it kind of all started with Unsurpassed Masters and all that, yeah. um, when that really wasn't the truth. I mean, back then, this stuff wasn't going around being traded as files. Uh, right. There was no torrent. No. And just, I also appreciate that you define, explaining the confusion that was behind Yellow Matter Custard and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, to me, it's part of the fan experience in the 70s, that if you were a Beatle fan, during the 1970s and during the years that the group was split, this was very much part of your experience. You know, depending on how hardcore you were, you know, you, you accumulate the basic official release catalog, you're going to go after anything you can. You're, you're, you're reading those ads in the back of Rolling Stone for, yep. you know, rare live Beatles and all that stuff and get on the mailing list. And to me, you know, because that was the age I became a fan, that oh, yeah. it, it was part of my fandom as it probably was your guys too. And oh, I yeah. just think you, you couldn't 
leave that part of the story out because that was the thing that was exciting. You know, was finding something, oh my God, I never heard this before. Even if you find out later on it's bogus or whatever. You know, like um, there's that live take of Blackbird, which ended up being actually Wings, and it wasn't Paul in the studio in 68 like you thought it was. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> people say, and I'm walking. <laughs> yeah, right. Have you heard the word? Well, right. Exactly. Right. Ellis Bumblebee, as you <laughs> Yeah, so there was, a, but you know what, you're right. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, we've talked about this on the bootleg shows, but on the bootleg show, which we have to do more of, but going to my local record store and seeing, you know, come back to Toronto and going, what? And not knowing what a bootleg was. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, or especially those, you know, the Joe Pope singles, because those yeah. look official. And you go yeah. home and, and you're like, wait, what? What is this? And you just had right. no clue. Because, again, you didn't decipher, you know, oh, this is bootleg. This is, you just thought it's Beetle product. And especially when it came to casualties and collector's items, which yeah. were on Capital promo labels, and, and they looked so great. And you bought it and you said, well, this looks real. I had no idea it wasn't real until years later. Collector's right. items. Right. Yeah, but you buy the stuff with no frame of reference whatsoever, especially the earlier stuff. A lot of it was kind of artfully packaged as time went on beyond just a, slipping a piece of paper into a shrink wrap. And That's the yeah, later. Really, yeah. Right. Um, but until I read all together now by Wally and Harry Castleman, sure. um, that whole section on bootlegs in there, it's like, oh my God, this is what I'm listening to. Right. You know, they gave us a context before there really was one out there. Right. And, you know, there's a few magazines out there that sometimes fill you in, but for the most part, you know, if something is packaged like an import or a fan club release or something like that, you're too unsophisticated at t- that time to know that it's complete BS. You know, you just accept it for what it is and, you know, just hope that you can enjoy it and get your money's worth out of it. But yeah, I mean, that was, it's that element of discovery that, you know, to the day I can think of what it was like to hear things for the first time that were actually legitimate bootleg material, like how do you do it? Yeah. Stuff like that. Like, you've been reading about it and like, oh my God, here it is. Well, also, there's a point there too where uh, before the catalog got standardized, you could go to a store and buy imports from different parts of the world and mm-hmm. you would think, oh, this bootleg, you might not realize that it was... A bootleg, would yeah, think it might could be have been import. part of the canon yeah, somewhere in some not, other country. Might be not if you're the naive, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that I think that's uh, well, nobody knew about, about you know Gem Records, uh, you right? Know, they were importers, importers, but you yeah. never, but you never knew whether it was you know a real legitimate import or because here to me, casualty or collector's items could have been the exact same thing as. Uh, the Beatles' greatest from Holland, or right. you never knew yeah. the Beatles' beat. I always thought that was a bootleg. I never yeah. knew about imports versus bootleg. Right. Yeah, it was very strange. Even that one, and I think it was when Beatles Forever came out that I first became hip to its awareness or its existence was uh, for Sam Bray Beatles. Yeah, which, sure. You know, it's like, oh, that's got the inner light on it. Cool, got to get that. And I found it through some mail order catalog that dealt in bootlegs as well as Apple product. And to me, like the, the quality wasn't razor sharp. So to this day, I'm not sure if it's a counterfeit or if it really was a legitimate release. Yeah, it you know? was a legitimate release, but God, is it awful. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is. Well, getting be, getting like Beatles in Italy. Yeah, right, right. Well, yeah, that, well, that, yeah. that's mastered else. direct from eight track tape. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. one thing I wanted to go back to, in, in we were talking about the videos before. One of the things you write about is whatever gets you through the night. Now, the original promo film is not what we see now as part of the standard right. promo films. And you just want to give a little background on it because, you know, we're New Yorkers. John's walking around New York City. We know where he's walking. But yeah. that's not something that footage ended up in other Yoko approved videos. But I still remember it seeing at the fest the first time ever. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it just was a great little 
piece. Would you like to just remind people what the original whatever gets you through the night was? Yeah, it was. It's you know you've seen the imagery of it before. You know most Beatles fans have seen probably the latter day iterations of it. John's got the long black coat on and the floppy hat, the dark glasses. He's walking around Central Park. He comes out of Tiffany's. He's by a hot dog vendor. He's on that little band shell in Central Park. All that footage. That was originally collated and used as a promo film for whatever gets you through the night. Um, as I recall, I, I think I talked about this in the book, it was a little late by the time he actually produced it. I think the song had already was in release and it had been on its way to number one or something, but it was out there for whatever outlets existed at the time to showcase it. So that footage ended up being used by Yoko years later, and she built the Mind Games promo around that because there wasn't really a Mind Games promo. Right. Whatever gets you tonight, she created a whole new one out of you know John and Yoko footage and this great irony of her you know crafting a promo film for his number one song he made without her during that uh, separation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but there it is. There's complete revisionism and rewriting of the history. And uh, I write about in the book that from the footage left over from that shoot, he had crafted something for Number Nine Dream, which was even more scarce because apparently it ran on Old Grey Whistle Test, but the BBC didn't save it. So that must exist somewhere. But the actual scraps of film that was not used in either promo was bought up by a collector, and I guess Yoko got her hands on it, and that's the stuff that ended up in promos years later when the video market was being taken care of. You know, one of the uh, chapters is is really about legal battles. Mm -hmm. And there are two that I really wanted to talk about, because one is so fun and so Ruddle-like, you know, George versus Ringo. Uh, and we don't even know if it's if it was really you know, suing, other than from what the two of them bantered back and forth Stig on the show. Stig sued himself. Well, exactly. It's very Ruddle-like. But I want to talk about that one, if you don't mind. And also, uh, after that, if you could talk a little bit about the Apple versus the Linga song, because, I mean, obviously that involves the Star Club tapes, and yeah. there's so much about that uh, lawsuit that we just don't, know about or or not as informed about as say you know uh, you know the, the George, Alan Klein yeah the Alan Klein the, the My, My Sweet Lord, Lord you right, know. Right. so if you could go first with the George versus Ringo and then the Apple one with Linga song okay uh, to address the George and Ringo on Ringo's Roto Gravier he records the George Harrison composition called I'll Still Love You and this is a song that Ringo was aware of at least as far back as seventy one or seventy two when George had first written it had gone through a couple title changes. And it was a song that was originally being pitched to Ronnie Spector during those abortive sessions where she cut a few tunes and only one got official release, which was Try Some Buy Some. <laughs> um, Asilla Black, I guess, recorded the song, probably in 72. And it didn't come out at the time. It was issued years later on a compilation. So Ringo was aware of the song that George had in his pocket. You know, he's gathering material for Roto Gravier. George is busy, you know, working on... Um, the 33 and a third album, as well as his My Sweet Lord case. And he's like, not got time to craft a new song for Ringo. So he's like, yeah, that Ringo asked him if he can use it. He says, yes, fine, that'll save me the job of writing you a new one. So he records it. Apparently, once the record was made and George heard it, he was not happy with it. We don't know to this day what he was unhappy about. The production, was it Lon Von Eaton sort of playing this Harrison-esque guitar part on it? It's a great Recorded. It is good. Yeah. Yes. And they made a promo film for it. Yeah. So maybe it was being earmarked for a possible single release, and because of the trouble that happened between him and George, it didn't end up going. But uh, as Ringo recounted the story, 
you know, he's talking about, you know, we're always crossed with each other. George was crossed with me, and he called me up and said, I'm going to sue you. And yeah, that was, was like, <laughs> oh, don't do that, Georgie. No, really, I'm going to sue you. And it's like, when you take a step back, and it's like, what can anybody sue an artist for who's recording their song, no matter how abysmal it might be? Right. Yeah. Now, right. Think, of what, think of what Elvis recorded, Cost- uh, I was going to say, think uh, of what Elvis Costello must have wanted to do to Linda Ronstadt, but anyway. Well, exactly, so, yeah. And he, yeah. He, he complained long and loud about that at the yeah. time, but as Linda pointed out, he didn't say no to the royalty check. You bet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so you know what? Case, what? There was a punk band that recorded Red Rubber Ball by Paul Simon, and you know, they, I, per- I guess they read an interview where he said he hated punk. So they purposely recorded one of his songs. Again, you know, they didn't stop the release of it. So I don't know what George thought he could have done. And apparently it was not something that I, I looked to see if there was any filings done on this, and there wasn't. It might have been just, you know, one lawyer talking to another lawyer. And it just died out once they got over being, you know, ticked off at Ringo for whatever reason. Well, you know, when you look at the bigger context of, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know the private dealings these two had. We know that they were particularly close. They were always supporting each other, you know, loved each other like brothers to the very end. And yet, one had the other's wife. Yeah, where where did that fall in there? Yeah, that's that's got to just be that's got to be messy dinner conversation. (laughs) I'm sorry, something's left unsaid there. Yeah, there. But you you know what though? Maybe maybe this happened. I mean, again, I'm going back, and you know, my my, you know, Wayne's World. Wayne's World. Um, The show where Ringo. Says it when they're both on the show. Uh, what's mm-hmm. the name of the show? I forgot. Uh, Aspel and Company. Aspel, yeah, that show. Ringo looked to be allegedly a little tanked. Tanked. Yeah. So maybe because Ringo always had to be funny, he had to be Ringo, the Ringo funny guy. Maybe mm-hmm. he just said that out of you know humor. Because George actually looks a little embarrassed when he says it. If yeah, you look at it, so you don't know. Maybe maybe Ringo was just talking out of school. I mean, and maybe well, there was nothing. Maybe George just said, look, I hate that version. And Ringo said, oh, he's starting to sue me. Maybe because he was tanked and he just wanted something funny to say. Yes, I considered that, but George doesn't contradict him either. That's you know, true. He just said, like, I'd rather not talk about this. Right, you know, Why right. did you bring this up in public, Ringo? Well, maybe you're. Maybe he didn't want to just say, oh, you're just drunk and you don't know what you're talking You know what I mean? <laughs> you never know. Well, that's but very funny. Let's, let, can we talk about the uh, Linga song a little bit? Yeah, the Linga song thing. You know, so you've got Alan Williams, you know, the, the former manager of the Beatles, who remembers the existence of these tapes made at the Star Club, even though he had not been handling them at the time they were recorded. Brian was, of course. And he tracks them down to this building that's set for demolition. <laughs> it was uh, some kind of studio yeah. facility, and they literally find them in a desk drawer mm-hmm. in 1973, I believe. I, there, there used to be footage of this on YouTube where they were sort of reenacting it from some 73 TV documentary. Re-enact- I don't think it's on there anymore. With Alan but, Williams? Uh, <laughs> with Alan Williams, yes, and also with Ted Taylor, who was a butcher at the time. So it, right. it, it was Ooh, very cover? fascinating. Anyway, so the tapes pass into the hands of this guy that starts up Linga Song Records just to have a label, having, you know, Apple shown complete disinterest, you know, a second time. And they are going ahead with putting this out and you know, doing their best sort of fake stereo it and clean up the sound as best you can. You know, I can't remember who it was that described it as the sounds of a great party going on next door. Yeah. That's, that's the gist <laughs> of the Star Club thing. Really well put. That's a good wow. one. Yeah. That's cool. but, uh, but they are fascinating, and they are you know huge in the Beatles' history to have this yes. kind of documentation. So we're not going to sniff at it too much. And just the energy alone that these things have, I mean, it's my God. This was a band that didn't want to be there at the time. Can you imagine what it was like when they really were hot and excited and you know, yeah, enjoying what they were doing? Wow. Yeah. 
so anyway, um, Apple becomes aware of their existence that they're getting planned for release. And really, you know, I, I have to chalk this up to Apple's not being on full steam at the time. Because any, you know, paralegal doing due diligence could have found out pretty quickly when they were recorded, and sure enough that they were under contract with EMI, Ringo was aboard, there was no fuzziness about, oh, maybe it was Pete Best, or maybe Pete Best was in the band, but Ringo was subbing for him that night. No, these were recorded in December of 62, you know, beyond dispute. Right. And they didn't take that step, they didn't go that extra mile, they kind of ignored it until it was too late, and then the judge said, well, you know, you, you should have filed something sooner, and they went ahead and released the stuff. You know, they were probably, EMI was getting ready to do the Hollywood Bowl stuff, and maybe they saw that as the thing that everybody would buy and just ignore this thing and kick it to the curb. But, you know, it ended up being another piece of the Beatle puzzle that was out there for all the fans to enjoy. Not yeah. until years later did they, you know, Apple is now, you know, revitalized, and Neil Aspinall is running things, and they're going after everything and everybody. And they get George into court, to actually testify in a case, you know, somebody else was wanting to reissue them at that point in the CD era, and he made that quote, something about, you know, because uh, the story was that John agreed to let themselves be taped in exchange for a case of beer. Right. And he said something like, uh, a deal between one party of drunks made with another drunk is not constitute a legal contract or something like that. So that one, the, the Apple won. And so that's why they're sitting on them to this day, as far as a legal issue goes. However, right. you've got Oxtango now, mm-hmm. put out their new version of it. Yeah. How they are getting away yeah. with this in the light of day, I have no idea. It's probably it's that possible. British copyright thing, but it shouldn't be released here, though. Right, it's possible. I'm not really sure what the deal is, but they seem to be, you know, they have this whole roster of things they're planning on putting out, including Hollywood Bowl <laughs> and all these other shows and things like that, and other artists as well. So I had suspected, you know, maybe is this like the sort of rhino handmade of Apple, and they're just shoving it out the door under a different name or something? That's, I don't that's know. That's a good point. Wow. It, though I have to say, and we've all heard it, though we haven't done a show on it yet, it sounds mm-hmm. pretty good. They cleaned it up as much as they could. It would be yeah. nice it if they actually... It sounds a lot like the Purple Chick one, though. Yeah, it does. Purple but, Chick yeah. is actually longer. But yeah. with digital technology, you can probably, if you had the original tape, maybe clean it up a little better. Because I yeah, swore yeah, they, they used... the claim that Red Hot was the intact tape. No, no it's not. not. Yeah, it's not the purple chick. I believe was mm-hmm. no, 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 no. It's no. not. I'm sorry. No. You're right. Well, it, 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 it's it's something that was stitched together to give right. you a complete performance, but not the raw tape itself. Right, 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 right. That does not exist. There was not. something used in Living in the Material World that roll over Beethoven that sounded like it was from the Star Club, but they, I never saw the credits of it. So, hmm. so right. I, I'm and not sure. I know that there are apparently in the extant tapes is more than one take of roll over Beethoven. Right. So and they record like three or four sets or something like that. So it could have been an alternate from the one we're familiar with. Now, one of the things you do in the book, which I think actually could be a whole book. Uh, I think the lawsuits would be a great book too, but that's a whole other thing. You did mm-hmm. a whole thing on on Beatle covers, which has uh, always been a favorite of mine. Why did you choose the ones you chose? And have you ever thought of maybe doing a whole book on Beatle covers or, you know, or something else like along those lines? Uh, there, there probably is a really good book there for somebody to write because to me it is interesting. I don't know how interesting it is to the world at large or Beatle fans at large. I think it, it's kind of inside baseball. It's like I do have a friend that's actually working on a book on all the original recordings that the Beatles were doing in their club days. You know, all those cover tunes, they were doing arcane stuff, you know, from Fats Waller to 
Peggy Lee, things like Anne that. Margaret. Ooh. Yeah, and Margaret. Yeah. yeah. You know, for the BBC stuff as well as the club sets. Um, I chose stuff that I thought was representative across a variety of artists of who are the big names of the day. And everybody from Diana Ross to Andy Williams, Olivia Newton-John. The Letterman. I know, but you know what? I was just about to say that, but I really respect, too, Robert, that you you know, you know, give these pieces their due. I mean, you know, I went back and listened to... Um, I, I was I was plugging the Dickens out of the book on one of my one of my uh, Beatle track shows because you inspired me to go back and pull up the the Barbara Streisand again and to pull up the Letterman version and you know it's just I like the fact that you're even handed you know I mean you, you, there's a great sense of humor about the book but you're taking into fact that these people are doing these covers in a very respectful respectful well, trying way. trying yeah, yeah. absolutely what what, yeah. what the results were is different but. Even, you know, to Tony's point, when you talk about the Letterman version of love, mm-hmm. and I always prefer, I've said it many, many times, I always prefer the Kenny Loggins version of love myself. I love that version. No pun mm-hmm. intended. I think he did a great version. But you even talk about why John had the original fade up, and it, and it was an intentional thing. Yeah. And most people don't know that. Most people get pissed off when it takes 30 seconds for the damn song to start. Right. But that was done for a reason. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, because John recognized that, you know, here he was putting on his hat, however inadvertently, as writer of standards, something he hadn't done in a long time, probably not since 63, 64 in the Beatles, where you're writing a song that other people could cover and make a success of. He recognized that of all the tunes he did on Plastic Ono Band, that love was probably the most overtly commercial and the one that would draw the most cover versions, you know, which it ended up doing, of course. But as far as his own take on it, he didn't really want that to be the representative song on the radio, you know, to sell the album. That would have That's been a mistake. Mother. Yeah, that yeah. would have been a mistake. It, exactly. You know, people would have thought, oh, you know, what a, what a sweet song, and then listen to the rest of the album and just, you know, been horrified. <laughs> yeah. So that's why he picked Mother, Imagine. and I think he knew full well that wasn't top ten material, but it did represent the flavor of the whole project. Yeah. So, yes, he faded it up slowly, like that 30 seconds or so, whatever it is, so that it wouldn't get radio airplay. However, come 1982, and he's no longer around to call the shots, and they put out the John Lennon collection, it was remixed or put back to full volume when it was issued as a single in the UK. Right. And I like that a lot. I I, I do, too. As an artist, I understand why he did it, but I think he sabotaged his own song. Well, it's it's not that, but I think probably had he been around to go back... And they were doing a compilation of his work, and the song was included. He may not have been so offended by that because then it would not be representing a current album. Right. Yeah. But absolutely, I mean, it was a, a clever thing for him to do. But one section of the book that fascinates me so much, so that I know that you know, I've tossed around to these guys of us doing a, an episode on it. But we always talk about who are the next Beatles, and you didn't quite approach it that way, which which I appreciate. It. You're talking about sort of. The chapter is called You Made Me Such a Big Star. They, too, weren't the Beatles. And I love the humor in that because um, you bring up ELO, which John himself referred to in the famous WNEWP, says, you know, son of Beatles. Yes. And Clatu that had all of the Paul is Dead type rumor mill buzz. Well, we should talk about Clatu a little. Absolutely. But also, too, just the idea of some of the other bands that you bring in. But, yeah, I mean, if we could talk about Clatu from it, that story is fascinating as hell. 
Also then, uh, Robert, toss out just some of the other bands that you bring in here, which I was applauding the fact I saw Stackridge in here. I was like, yay! Well, Big Star also. And Big Star also. I mean, but, Alex Chilton, but yeah, I guess if we could talk about the, some of the Klaatu insanity. Because that was actually almost unintentionally intentional. What, what Clatu or Big yeah. Star? Clatu. No, Clatu. Oh, Big yeah. Star was, was oh, yeah, different. Yeah. They were very they were, pop. Great yeah, they, but they, you know, they're a different band than the Beatles. Oh, absolutely. Totally, oh, yeah, as they all are, but, right. but the Clatu thing, yeah, I mean, it's great to see that. So, Robert, yeah, if you could expand a little bit on the Clatu scenario. Yes. Okay, well, Clatu, it's amazing when you think that this actually had legs for a period of time in the mid-'70s. You know, in the age of the Internet, it never would have passed muster, you know? But the story was they were a Canadian band, sort of this pop progressive band, and they made the decision pretty early on to preserve their anonymity. They wanted the music to speak for themselves. It had nothing to do with contriving any Beatle buzz or anything like that. That was just who they were. And in fact, if you ever see pictures of the guys, you can kind of see why they wanted to hide behind anonymity. Yeah. <laughs> well, they weren't Faces. exactly built for stardom. Faces for, for radio, right? Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Us. So they put out this album in, I believe, August of 76. It's on Capitol. This had been after they put out a few singles in Canada, and then they got a record deal. So they put it out there, and it didn't really do much. It just kind of sat there, and it was kind of dead in the water. By the time, come early next year, I think it was January of 77, that somebody, some journalist in America on the East Coast, picked up on the sort of perceived resemblances. This is like the echo of... Paul is dead in terms of clues being planted in the packaging and in the music there. And there are songs that maybe superficially sound like they could be, you know, Paul McCartney in there somewhere or some <laughs> Beatlesms laid out in the production or in the tunefulness. Anybody who's a hardcore Beatles fan with any, you know, working pair of ears would listen to us and say, no, it's not the Beatles. But then there's all these other aspects of it that it now comes into the realm of wish fulfillment. You know, this is the year that people are putting $30 million, $50 million offers on the table for the Beatles to get back together. And here's yeah. this record that comes out on Capitol. There's just like no information given about the people who made it whatsoever. And there's these little Beatlesisms in it that if you string together a set of them, like some of the songs in there, the one I prefer, Sub Rosa, Subway, that sounded a little bit like Red Rose Speedway, and um, they mentioned cities in there that are in the same order the Beatles played them when they came to America in 64. You know, New York, Washington. Right. Ooh. <laughs> if there's a sun on the cover. Well, the Egyptian god of the sun was Ra. Turn those letters around. A-R, Abbey Road, the last time they worked together. Wow. The band's name, Klaatu. Oh, Where come on. Where did we see that well, in Beetledum? Well, so Ringo. Yeah. Vienna, sure. Yeah. Sure. So you put a whole pile of this stuff together, and there's you know, an audience receptive to wanting to hear, really, the Beatles got back together and they didn't tell us? You know, so it gives it a little bit of legs. Well, calling but, occupant know, sounds like, you know, if you really wanted to, you could make some parts of it sound like the John Lennon, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be if they were trying not to be the Beatles, but be are yeah. the Beatles. But I do love you quoting the uh, the NME headline: "Deaf idiot journalist starts Beatle rumor." Right. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much nails it. I mean, it's so fun. That well, that's another thing I love about the book. You know, the humor is just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love even when you talk about band on the run. You know, and you say things like Paul thought he was a better drummer than he was, but you say it in your own way, and you know. Uh, 
sometimes giving credit for being a better hand behind the drum kit than he actually is. Paul did a decent <laughs> job on the album as a whole. I, I like the little bits of humor well, thrown it's the, in there. It's the irreverence that goes on on this show that we, <laughs> that know, we love reason, about right, it. That we love about it. And that's why Robert and Richard and all the authors that not quite so uh, reverent as the last generation of Beatles. But what's amazing is the last generation of Beatles authors were reverent, but were writing things that were completely off the wall. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is even funnier and, and almost like making stuff up when they didn't know. Whereas now it's, I think we sort of look back in a different way, you know. I, th- I think also we know so much now that not to have a little sense of humor about what you know. Yes, you have to. You know. We're going to take a break right now and we're going to come back right after this. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to let you know that besides Fab Four Free For All, each of the three of us are involved in our own individual projects. Mitch Axelrod's two books, Beetle Tunes, the only book about the cartoon Beatles show, and Little Billy and Baseball Bob can be found through all of your good booksellers online, including Amazon.com, or if you'd like autographed copies, contact Mitch on Facebook. And my buddy Rob Leonard has a great Beatles show that he's been doing for 20 years called Beatle Songs, and it's on every Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And you can listen to it online. It's streaming at www.ncc.edu slash WHPC. And also look for it on TuneIn.com. And Tony Truquardo is the host of 4F, free format for free, on WCWP 88.1 on Long Island. He's on every Monday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time and also at www.wcwp.org. Also available on TuneIn.com. And we're back, and we're talking with Robert Rodriguez. He is the author of a new book called Solo in the 70s, John Paul, George, and Ringo, 1970 to 1980, published by Parading Press. And Robert's been nice enough to join us. This is our third interview with him. Yeah. Different books and other things. Robert, can you do a follow-up to this album called So High in the 70s? Album? I think, I mean, a follow-up to this book called So High in the 70s? I think that'd be kind I of I think a, everything Paul did was yeah. follow-up Well, didn't to Paul this. already do one called High in the Clouds? I yeah, thought I, a perfect title from a book from Paul McCartney. And, and for a kid's book, my God. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? And nobody ever says anything about that hey, except us. Hey, they made a kid's yeah. book out of Simon and Garfunkel's At the Zoo. I mean, really? <laughs> well, yeah. you know. But, Something's always um, happening at the zoo. But when we when we last when we when we left off, we were talking about some of the band. This quote sound alike bands. But I, what I like is that you give due to another person who has taken on sort of a higher level of visibility among the Beatles circles, or did years later, uh, which is the Hudson Brothers. Yes. And um, a lot of people, I think, are very familiar, obviously, with Mark Hudson's involvement with Ringo. Mm-hmm. But you put that the group into perspective, which I think it's the first time I've ever seen anybody really write anything. At well, all. take them so seriously. Like, yeah, and take well, them that's, seriously. Well, that's very interesting that if you think about it, had he not first hitched his wagon to Ringo, Mark Hudson, and then to the fest, would anybody have any awareness of the Hudson brothers at all? You know, he's got that pretty indelible connection these days. You know, you right. associate them. And I think a lot of people going to the fest aren't even quite sure why. You know, they know that he worked with Ringo, but how many people really remember back to their 74 heyday with the TV shows and with their recording career? Oh, I know, know the Rascal Dazzle Hour. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but that uh, the razzle dazzle. But, but the connection to Bernie Taupin. The, yeah, I mean, but they, they again, were, they were serious. And, and you, know? you know yeah, something? I, I got to tell you that you know when So You Are a Star came out, I thought mm-hmm. that was Beatles. Yeah. I really I, I couldn't tell you whether I thought it was Paul or John because I thought right. it was more Paul. But mm-hmm. it's so Beatley in production in the way he sings it, the inflections yeah. in his voice. I mean, it's, it's very influenced. It's like John singing a song written and produced by Paul. Wow, that's <laughs> right. really good. <laughs> right. Okay, I'll give you that. That's that's a good point. I want to go back to the the covers thing. I think only you would would write about Keith Moon's cover of "Move Over, Mizelle." <laughs> um, how could you not? It's you have to. It, you got to give us a little background on how Keith ended up with this song. It's a B side of John's, a lesser of, known John. By me. It almost ended up on Walls and Bridges, John's version at least. And yeah. and he also covered "In My Life." From yeah. two sides of the moon. Give us a little background on our favorite drunk drummer. <laughs> yeah, well, as you know, you know Keith and, and John and Ringo and Harry were all really tight during that period of hanging out together. And I, I think to his dying day, you know, despite his moving back with Yoko to Dakota and the walls going up, I think he really did miss those guys. You know, he was no longer on a long enough leash to be allowed to go out partying and all that. But, you know, they had a kinship for sure. And during that period, you know, he had written Move Over Mizell, recorded, as you said, for Walls and Bridges, but it got bumped at the last minute, ended up being the B-side to stand by me for the next project, Rock and Roll. But, you know, Keith, you know, somehow must have been aware of its existence. And John said, sure, you know, go ahead and, and record it for your album, which he was not part of at that time, although Ringo was, and the usual other posse of musicians around them was. And it, it's a song that maybe John was thinking because it's not really sung, you know, as much as <laughs> rapid fire recitation, that Keith could handle it. But he doesn't even have the breath support to get it all out. You know, you, you can hear him, you know, <laughs> practically between lines. So there it is. And, you know, it, it is what it is. It's a nice little snapshot of the hard parting era. But uh, in my life, which he did record, and he does a sincere take on, you know, it's like among you people listening that are Who fans are familiar with Bellboy, yeah. you know, on, the, mm. on its surface, from Quadrophenia, you would never, ever give Keith Moon a song to sing on purpose. <laughs> Yet, right. Yet, or Bell, the yeah. persona he is portraying as this guy who is like the idol of all the kids, but really his life is pathetic, so it's got that poignancy to it. You know, it was perfect giving it to Keith. It and, really and, and is. By the end of that song, Bellboy, you know, you get the sadness and it almost gives you chills because it's so sad. What? And it's sort of the same thing that he brought to the table for In My Life. Yeah. And, you know, at this distance, it's further informed by the fact that he had two more years to live when he recorded it. Right. But point. he was a guy that, you know, had lived this wild, rough rock star life. But by all accounts, anybody who knew him, this outrageously, you know, hyper extroverted persona was really concealing this inner sadness in him. You know, as Pete Townsend said, the only time you know when Keith is serious is when he's crying. Right. Yeah. And the rest of the time, right. he's just got this act going on. And so I think that even if you don't know that stuff, just hearing his voice, is it tuneful? No. But it's perfect in nailing that pathos. I always thought his version of In My Life was the pub is closing and he's singing the last song of the night. Wow. That's the way I look at him, that song. Maybe that was the context. And you know what? I always liken that sort of to like Kiss with Beth. You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, you would never take Peter Chris and say, wow, you're going to be the... Singer on this song, on this lovely ballad, on this lovely ballad, because well, his it. voice. I know he wrote it, yeah. but others wrote for in true. bands and didn't sing their yeah, own true. songs. But true. but my goodness, I mean, Beth is a great song, and 
probably is one of the biggest Kiss hits ever, ever. Yeah. and mm-hmm. it's, vocally it's not the greatest. No. But it's so heartfelt. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it fits the material so perfectly. I mean, yeah. if you gave it to a real singer, yeah. you might have lost something. Now, yeah. I want to I yeah. want to talk, I mean, it's a morbid subject, but we've got to bring it up. You mm-hmm. talk about some of the important deaths in the lives of the Beatles at this time. That was a rough chapter to get through, honestly. Yeah, but be, it was very frank. poignant. It's very poignant, but you just don't realize how many people fell Well, you also, during that period. Well, you, it was really It really... Drove that home to put it in perspective like that. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, after reading Mark Lewison's book and you really find out how Paul was about death or about anything. And then you read, you know, your part uh, about, you know, his father and, you know, he just carried on, you know, and Mike McCartney talking about the two deaths I want to talk about. Let's talk about Paul's dad and, and, and let's. Well, let's talk about Mel Evans because I think th- there's a lot of misconception about or misperception, whichever one you want to say, about the death of Mel Evans. So, can we talk about those a little? Yeah, right. Um, with Mel Evans, he had cast his lot with the ex Beatles when they split up. It's carrying on as though the Beatles were still in existence, although now there were three that he was hanging with, not so much Paul. And he really tried to make it as a record producer. You know, he produced No Matter What for Badfinger, which was like their defining record that was issued over the objections of Apple in England because they didn't think it was commercial enough. But uh, I guess somebody in Capital heard it, said, no, 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 it's a single. And it didn't give him the legs to continue, despite what you might think. And he really struggled. You know, he got fired from the Keith Moon Project. And one of the last things he was working on was the demos for Natural Gas, which was the Joey Mullen project after Badfinger. And um, he kind of found himself at loose ends, and he didn't really have a sense of purpose. You know, he spread over the three ex-Beatles he would be hanging with, but his own career hadn't really taken off. And I think what really drove him to despair was the end of 1975, when his wife Lil, who he'd been estranged from for a number of years back in England, filed for divorce. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was like he no longer had a home to come back to at that point, and here he is adrift in L.A. So he had been working on his memoirs that were based on the, the diary he had been keeping, and it was about a week or so away from the manuscript being turned in. He had a co-writer professional that was working with him on it, and he had this, this girlfriend out in L.A. And he just bottomed out one day, and Ken Mansfield, who wrote the uh, forward to my 2.0 book, has talked about this, because they were very close, and he received a phone call from Mel Evans on that last night, wanting to talk, and he could tell something was very wrong with Mel, but Mel was not letting on what it was. Mm. He's like, you know, Mel, I've got an award ceremony to go to tonight, can we have lunch tomorrow? And Mel's like, yes, let's do that. And that's where they left it. Hours later, he's in his girlfriend's apartment, and he's got a pellet gun with him. Now, you know, it apparently is one of these things that looked real enough to be a real gun, and he was in an agitated state, and it seems that what he might have been angling for was suicide by cop, which his girlfriend, she calls the police, they call his co-writer to try to talk him out of his tree, as it were, and there's no reasoning with him. And the cops, when they break open the door, see him there with this gun he refuses to put down. They just unload on him. And he was 40 years old, and, you know, he just had reached the end of his rope. It is a very, very sad story. It's one of those things, like, and I talk about the death of Pete Ham in that same chapter. Yeah. Here's a guy that probably wasn't beyond reach, but 
the people that could have helped him were at that moment. And it's just an awful tragedy because, you know, he probably could have been saved, as Paul said. I knew he wasn't a nutter and, you know, he was having financial difficulties and he just lost all sense of hope at that moment. And it would have passed. He would have gotten through it. So it's really a shame that at that moment there was nobody there that could really give him what he needed. And where and is just, the book? Yeah. That's a good question. You know, nowadays, if some high-profile celebrity-associated persona is working on a book, it's killed before it's published, you better believe they'd build a campaign around it. Right. Because you want to capitalize on all that notoriety. Nobody has ever come up with a satisfactory explanation of what happened to that manuscript and why it wasn't published. You know, maybe in early 76, the publishers decided who was going to be interested in this, because there wasn't a whole lot of Beatle books out at the time, and he's not a Beatle himself. And I would love to know what happened to it. You now, don't, do you think there's an odd chance that Apple acquired and buried it? It's possible. You know, the person to ask, and nobody seems to be able to track down the guy that was his co-author, you know, what happened to him? He, he certainly would have known the inside story. And he would probably have his own copy, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it would have been typed up yeah. in those days. But So somewhere it must exist unless it was purposely suppressed, and I'm not sure why it would have been. What is interesting is that during that year, Mel seemed kind of out of his mind in terms of you know his recall of things. If you guys had seen the uh, David Frost Salute to the Beatles special sure. that aired in uh, May of 1975 as part of uh, ABC Wide World Entertainment, yep. you know you look at it now and you think, oh great, David Frost in the story of the Beatles. It's actually pretty much a clip job. Oh, a lot yeah. of it, it wasn't even up to date when it was made because like the most recent George clip was from the Bangladesh concert, nothing mm-hmm. after that. But um, Mal is interviewed through there, as is George Martin. And he talks about Let It Be being written about him, and that the original line was, Brother Malcolm comes to me. Well, that was wow. a line. That was one that of the was, That was a line when they were messing around in the studio, but right. it had nothing to do yeah. with the writing of the song. Well, but it's like right. he took that and ran with it and was attaching more importance to himself than you know really there was. You know, He would have had a legitimate claim for fixing a hole. Yeah, sure. Well, he co-wrote sure. That. And they paid him off, you know, instead of making it Lennon McCartney Evans. It was but they paid off the family after the fact. Yeah, they gave after him some money. Fact. And that's that's the sad part about it. If they would have helped him prior, he might have been able to get through it, like well, Robert and said. It, and it's also the idea, too, that if you hadn't had a guy who, if someone had just literally just shot him in the kneecap. That's once, what yeah. Mary Hopkins said. That right. would have been, right. you know, I mean, right. really, I hate to be. Hate no, to you're be right. The, you're you right. Know, but, yeah, I mean, that's... Anyway. Robert, one of the things in the book which I always find amazing and nice to see is you use um, advertisements from the day. What did you learn just seeing some of the ads that maybe don't show up a little bit later? How no one knew how to friggin' handle Badfinger on Warner Brothers? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Well, like, I'm looking at the Give Good Ireland, Ireland Back to the Irish, and it says, hear the uncensored version at your local record <laughs> shop. And I'm like... Yeah. You know, he, he's a master of hype. You know, he's turning it into something much more salacious than it is. Right. But the, yeah. but the ads are pretty cool in just the way they present uh, the band at the time. Not just yeah, that, but other things, too. Yeah, that's exactly the point, is I wanted, you know, from our distance, we have varying degrees of importance and context that we apply to releases. Like, oh, you know, this was a great comeback album, and this was you know, the single that should have been a big hit or whatever. It's interesting to see how the stuff was presented when it was new, how it was being introduced to the world, how people were seeing it for the first time. So I always try to stick my books, whatever period they're covering, 
I don't put any imagery in there after the period that's covered in the book. Yeah, and that is the world for the first time. That's very, very appreciated. Like uh, for for number nine dream, it says, you know, the ad is listen to this dream, which was part of that whole listen to campaign Mm -hmm. uh, for John for that album. So. It's, what I find interesting that it was a great campaign. You know, it was everything—the badges and the buttons, and even those little billboards on the side of city buses. There was listen to everything. But then bootleggers got into the act and started creating all kinds of stuff that wasn't originally part of the Apple campaign. Listen to, and it just developed legs of its own. It just—it's so charming. It's so like a cool little part of the whole Walls and Bridges era. You know, I love seeing that stuff. Good point. And it really was probably the first time there was ever a full-blown campaign. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, it's sort of the tail end of Apple Records, but this was John energized during the period that, to hear him talk about it later, when he was bottoming out and, and, you know, the bottom of a bottle all that time because he was away from Yoko. No, he was highly successful. He was doing a number of projects. He was creating number one hits for himself and for other people. And, yes, he was excited about his career. You know, the, the what ifs, you know, including his plans for visiting Paul down in New Orleans for the making of Venus and Mars, hmm. you know, are just staggering. I think if you look at it, and this is pop psychology 101 outsider perspective, maybe what had been holding him back, having had made his peace with Paul a while before, but from actually working with him was wanting to achieve some parody. You know, here was Paul, who had the string of number ones by the end of 74 to his credit. John, the first Beatle out of the gate working on solo projects, didn't get his first number one single until November of 74. Right. Ringo already had two off the Ringo album, crying out loud. Nobody had done that to that point. No Beatle had two back-to-back number one singles. So finally, he's got a number one album with a number one single, which Imagine didn't even do. Maybe mm-hmm. then he was ready. He's on top of the world. He's creating promo films. He's all over you know, radio and uh, Monday Night Football and you know, uh, old Greg Whistle Test. He may have been ready in his mind at that time to say, okay, Paul, I can approach you as an equal again, and we can do something together. Was that, that actually could have been a potentially fun chapter for the next solo book. Just all of their various comments throughout the 70s compiled as to whether or not they were getting back together. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, every interview, any Beatle interview, there's always that moment where you're waiting for yep, the interviewer yep. to say, so when are the Beatles getting back well, together? Well, Howard, if it looks like this, maybe we'll do it. I mean, even Elliot Mintz, you know, who was... Yeah. An insider, you know, yeah. asked it yeah. because when he had to. When are the to. Beatles getting, will the Beatles get back together? <laughs> you know, but there's so much more to ask about. But I mean, if people buy we the book. We haven't even skimmed the surface, which is not, what's cool. No, the, because the book is over so 400 much, pages. Yeah. And, and yeah. the fun part that I really enjoy, we did a whole show called Oh Solo B-Sides. And you, you have so many in here that I, I'm not going to give them away because I really want people to go search this book out and buy it because it's totally worth it. All of your books are. We just love all your books. And in fairness to everybody, we should say that you do give us a little thanks in the book. So, yeah. you know, when that's Was not... That full why, disclosure? Yeah, full disclosure. But, yeah. but you know something? We could have been quoted also. You know, we could have got one of those quotes, <laughs> which we weren't. In the next book. And then we'll get it in the Well, next. you think yeah. we're not going to say nice things? <laughs> but Robert you know, Rodriguez is... Is it uh, love no, storms? No, no, no. I, I will In the say, wrong way. I will say that I even learned, I mean, I, I even learned stuff. You didn't put it together in the section for the B-sides, but talking about, like, Deep Blue. Yes. If you read other sections of the book, you will put stuff together about what George was feeling during that song. Yep. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which sure. I love, too, because all of a sudden I'm reading it and I'm going, 
Hey, yeah. you know, I just read about why he's so deep, deep blue, yeah. uh, you know, 100 pages prior. Right. So I, I, I love that. You didn't make everything all encompassing in one section. You made us seek out and connect the well, dots. Well, the nonlinear so aspect of the yeah. book is what I, makes I it just love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, you're, you're sort of forced to read the whole book to get all the information. Yeah. Right. Even if yes, you don't but, read it from start to finish, you know, right. eventually you're going to yeah. wish you did. Right. right. You don't have to right. read it in a linear fashion. Yeah. But you'll go, oh, wow. Uh, okay, that works. That works. That's what I love about all of your books. You don't have right. to read any of right. them in order. In order. You could yeah. just start at the back and Which say, Which is good because that's the way I read. <laughs> nice. I just open, I open the middle and start. Short attention spans and yeah. demands well, on people's time 24 7. So that was really the impetus behind the FAQ format in the first place. It's not questions in the book. It's like I wanted to sort of project out there on the book cover if you're looking for answers, you'll find them here. And you'll find them in a way that are easy to access rather than having to plow through the whole thing you know, right. at the right. end. Okay, well, that just about does it for our show today with author Robert Rodriguez. He is the author of Solo in the 70s, John Paul, George, and Ringo, 1970 to 1980, published by Parading Press. Where's the best place to find the book? Yeah. Well, it's on Amazon, but if you somehow can't reach Amazon, you can always go to my site, revolverbook.com, or paradingpress.com, and have direct links to the print and Kindle versions. Is there an E in parading? No. <laughs> All right. Well, some people might put it there. You, you know, never who know. knows? Now so we, I want to just make sure that people know that it's, you know, parading without the E. If they go to that website, can they get it autographed? Sure. Okay. Yeah. You write me directly, and uh, I'm That's, really available for signing books. What's uh, your next book, if you uh, have started it yet? Um, you know, there's been other projects that have come up, non-Beatle stuff that I want oh, to write come about. come on. That I've started we only yeah, care about the Beatles. Yeah, I don't give a <laughs> no, crap. And Elton John and The Who and... Yeah, Rush, yeah. Rush. I think the Who's been done defin definitively now, but I think the next Beatle one will be on the White Album. Wow. Really? Ooh. Yeah. Cool. And the cover's going to be... <laughs> All black. Well, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I was waiting for that answer. <laughs> With the number in white. Each one will be <laughs> exactly. numbered in it's, white. It's exactly. the negative of it. There you go. You know? yeah. It's not right. a negative book. It's just it's a, a negative. negative. <laughs> no, we, we well, really... We look forward to that one. I, I love reading your stuff. It's just so... E it's an easy read. Yeah. You do the humor, but you don't ever... Take us for granted, the reader, right. I, and personally, I love that. So whether you're a beginner in the Beatle world of, of fandom, of especially of the solo stuff. Geekdom. Or a geek, it's a great book. Yeah. So anyway, right. well, th thank, thank you, you, Robert. and uh, Thank you, guys. And that just about does it. I have been your co-host. No, I've been your moderator, so now your co-host. Uh, I'm Rob Leonard, and this has been the Fab Four Free For All. And joining me as always is... Tony Chiguano. And... Mitch Axelrod. And we'll see you next time. Wait, Oh, and a very special guest. Oh, I already thanked him in the previous <laughs> sentence. But we want to thank him again. Okay. And we thank again oh, Robert God. Rodriguez, author of Solo in the 70s, John Paul Georgia Ringo, 1970-1980, published by Parady Press. Yeah, this, uh, this is the last time Rob moderates, by the way. <laughs> no, no, no. I should moderate more, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks folks. Robert. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, guys. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All. <laughs>